Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Last week, we finished up our second round of virtual hunt expos with the one and only Fred Zink. If you don't know Fred, he founded Zink Calls and AvianX Decoys, along with being a leader in waterfowl hunting and outdoor conservation. He's a nationally recognized goose caller and uses his expertise to set the standard in the hunting call industry. His team produces calls for waterfowl, predator, and turkey hunters. Fred has hunted ducks and geese all over North America and has a hunting TV show, AvianX TV. Here's our conversation with Fred Zink. Good evening, everyone. It's Ben Flystricker with Shields. Welcome back to another virtual hunt series tonight. We got Fred Zink. We're very excited about it. Talk some waterfowl. Uh, it's going to be a great night. Uh, currently, right now, I help out with the Shields Outfitter products along with the Shields products, so the product development side. Uh, we got a lot of fun things in the works for 21. Very excited about it. But right here, I've got Matt Schneider from our Fargo store. He's going to help co-host this evening. So, Matt, if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been working at the Fargo store here in the fishing department, actually, um, for two years now. Um, and I mainly moved to Fargo for college, but I ended up just taking a full-time position here at Shields, and I love it here. I mean, I get to sell the stuff that I love. So um, I've been waterfowl hunting basically ever since I can remember. I'm 20 years old, so I've been fish. I've been waterfowl hunting for 15, 16 years now, and you know, I just I love it. It's one of those things that once you start doing it and you start getting the drive for, you just it's an addiction almost. Yeah, who got you into it? Uh, so my dad got me into it a little bit with like a little water shoot here and there, and then actually my good buddy started getting me into field hunting, and so. When I was little, we would just go out field hunt, have his dad actually sit with us because we needed a guardian. And, uh, yeah, those two really got me into it, I would say. Yep. And then thousands of dollars later. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, like I said, we're going to have a uh, Q&A tonight with Fred Zink. Uh, hopefully everybody out there in the audience knows who Fred is. Uh, he's got a, a fantastic resume in the waterfowl industry as well as the turkey industry. Um, we got a prize drawing tonight, over $7,000 worth of product. We've got our sponsors from Zinc Calls, Browning, Danner, Vortex, and Yeti. Um, probably one of the more exciting things is we have a custom, one-of-a-kind call from Fred that's going to be given to a lucky winner out there tonight. There it is, if you guys can see it. <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. I'm extremely jealous that uh, we unfortunately don't get a win tonight. But maybe someday. <laughs> all right. But again, I wanted to make sure we thank all the sponsors out there with the sponsors. We definitely couldn't do these these awesome events here. I mean, this is uh, we're wrapping up the hunting series tonight. Fred's going to be the uh, the tail end of it. So we're very excited to have Fred be the tail. But um, Dan or Yeti, Vortex, Browning and Zinc, appreciate everything you guys do for us and uh, great partners for us. And at this point, I think I'm just going to introduce Fred. Uh, like I said, I'm pretty sure most people know who Fred is. But Fred, if you would. Please kind of give us a uh, download of who you are, what got you in the industry. I mean, you've been into it for, I mean, growing up, I mean, I knew you. So, yeah, pretty cool. I've been in, uh, so, uh, my name is Fred Zink. I'm from, originally from Southwest Ohio. Uh, I grew up in a family that hunted. Um, my grandpa's a hunter and my great grandpa was a fishing guide. So, to be honest with you, I grew up on a farm, horse farm, and uh, I just don't remember anything but hunting uh, as far as back as I can remember. Uh, my dad was a uh, big game hunter and a uh, small game hunter, actually. Uh, he did a lot of pheasants, quail, rabbit, squirrel. Uh, my dad uh, grew up in an era where uh, hunting was a, not only a way of life, but it was a way of uh, uh, surviving. Um, tells many, many stories of uh, growing up where he was actually hunting dinner uh, for him and his whole family. So just grew up in a family that did it. I kind of caught my wind and... Uh, and hunting. I remember I was like three years old. I was in a Rocky Mountain uh, elk camp, just hanging out with my dad um, in elk camp. I remember seeing the elk and the mule deer. And then I kind of just caught this fever about uh, waterfowl hunting. My uncle was a uh, waterfowl hunter and loved to go do it. And it was just something about the communicating the waterfowl with calls and things like that. Um, I started 
hunting when I was nine. Personally, got my hunter safety course card in 1979. I'm 50 years old, so uh, just my entire life and uh, been hunting. Great to grow up in a family that hunted and uh, got going. Started competing in calling contests. Uh, almost on a somewhat of a bet, a verbal bet from my uncle. Said I wasn't good enough to do it, and he and he was uh, to be honest with you, he was right to begin with. Uh, and I thought he was wrong, but he turned out to be right. And it took me a while. I got my butt kicked for a little bit and figured it out. Met some inf- uh, very inspirational people in the calling world. Uh, Tim Grounds being one of them. Yep. Uh, Wendell Carlson from Carlson Championship Calls being another one. Oh, yeah. Took me under the wing and uh, ended up meeting Bush Richard back. And then many of the names that you hear now and see now are people that, uh, to be honest, we have known for over 30 years uh, or about 30 years. And, uh, just got into competing calling contests, was fortunate enough to win a, lo- a lot of championships and met a lot of great people. A lot of the people I still am really, really good friends with today and started um, in 2001 designing. Well, actually prior to that, helping Tim Grounds uh, sell calls, do things, travel all over the world, United States, video. Um, I've just been in and involved in it for a long time. I really, really got my start in the early 90s um competing wing calling contests filming a lot of the early whistling wings videos back in the day like in the early to mid 90s um and then did a lot of remington country tv shows did, did a lot of uh other television shows through the years and then started my own business uh with zinc calls 2000 uh started avery greenhead gear 2001 and uh started avnx in 2009 uh so it's been, I've been in the industry, made, made my living in the industry since I've been uh, 30 years old, basically. Um, I was born in 70 and in 2000, I uh, started Zinc Calls. And at that point, I went to work, work for Avery not too long after that. And uh, been in the outdoor industry, designing, developing waterfowl gear and having a ball at it, actually. So that's kind of my story wrapped up. <laughs> that's a great career. So in your opinion, what's your favorite memory? I know this is tough because it, there are so many factors that go into it, but what is one memory that you'll never forget? Man, that's a tough one. I know, um, it's super hard. I apologize ahead of time. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, God, there's so many memories of, you know, I've got to experience so many different things and, and such good hunting, um, being involved with professional guides, being a professional guide. Um, being a part of uh, film crews traveling all over the United States and Canada uh, day after day, year after year, week after week for many years. Uh, there was about a, I would say, a 15-year period where I very seldom hunted without a video camera because we were making so much content and mm-hmm. going so long that there's just so many memories um, that of just things that most people might see in a lifetime. Uh, we were in areas and times and, and situations where we seen it day after day, sometimes for weeks at a time, you know, but I think it comes down to memories of my kids, memories with my, uh, my dad. Mm-hmm. I remember shooting probably my fondest memory was my first memory of really what got me hooked was uh, the first duck I ever killed when I was nine years old. It was a blue wing teal. I shot with my grandpa's 20 gauge Fox. So just, I got so many memories. I got thousands of memories that, to be honest with you, that I never forget. You know, I have a lot of bands on this lanyard. I put them on actually for a photo shoot because I used to have lanyards full of them that I would wear at grounds and I would show up. It was like, who's going to have the most bands this week type of deal. Oh, yeah. And I've literally killed hundreds and hundreds of bands, not because I'm a great hunter, it's because I grew up in a, a time frame where. Uh, the early season, it used to be called the nuisance season, and mm-hmm. become the early season, special season. Uh, each state had to prove that they were shooting less than 1% migratory waterfowl. Well, the only way they could do that with Canada geese was to ban them. Yep. And there was many hunts where I would literally scout, like shooting a, a, or targeting a big whitetail, where I wouldn't hunt unless I knew there were a tremendous amount of bands in a field. So I might there might be 400 geese in a, in a field hardly any bands i would find a, a field that had 50 where 40 of them were banded and we would just it was like a trophy yep. and so back in the day i'm older i forget a lot of them i could tell you almost who i shot each band with what what the situation was how old the goose was you know 
and that was probably my first 100, 125 of them. And it started to get to where it was just another band. And so probably my first memory was my fondest, but there, man, I've had hundreds of them since. Yep. Met a lot of good people out there hunting and chasing waterfowl for sure. Yeah. It's pretty fun, especially chasing across the country. The different areas, yeah, the different yeah. birds. You, you, you see so many different things that uh, <clears throat> that's why I think uh, one of the reasons why I've been so successful with designing products, man, is is I've hunted with so many different people, and I've got the opportunity to hunt with people that were the best in their area. Okay, as you travel travel across the United States, East, West, North, South, Canada, all over Canada. What works uh, maybe in Nebraska might not work in Minnesota or Ohio or whatever. Some of it might, but it is, it's, it's a combination of being able to see how a lot of people different uh, hunt and picking up little tips from everybody. And the more you expose yourself uh, to that, I think the smarter you get and you start to realize. My, my dad always told me one thing, and, and I see it's true. He said, you get two ears and one mouth and God gave you that for a reason, you know? So I'm a listener. I ask a lot of questions, but I listen and I watch. Um, and I always, I get this term, never guide the guide. So I might end up getting invited to someplace in say Indiana to hunt with this fella uh, for a goose hunt, film goose hunt or photography or just a friend hunt. And a lot of times I say, Hey, uh, once you set the decoy spread or what do you think? What do you think about this? And to be honest with you, a lot of times I sit back and let them do it. Cause they've been successful in their area and I like to watch yep. and I like to watch and learn. And sometimes I see things that they should have done that they didn't. Sometimes I learn, you know, so I never guide the guide until things go wrong, you know, and then I might offer some. <laughs> to say. Yeah. You can point the blame at them. Yeah. Well, it's all, yeah, it's possible sometimes. Right. Yep. <laughs> hey Fred, those are some pretty cool looking decoys that you got behind you. Uh, would you mind commenting on a couple of them at all? Uh, the ones back here on my shelf. Yeah. Those are uh, actually a majority of them are all hand carved. Uh, I'm going to get up on my chair. I'm going to show you the first decoy that I ever carved for competition. The only one, actually. The very first decoy I carved was a Cork Canada goose. I gave it to a good friend of mine named Steve Derbyshire. I, I uh, hunted with him and uh, I met Steve. He's from, he lives in basically the Kingsville, Ontario area. Uh, in, Ontario, in Ontario, it's right where Jack Miners is from. So he's a really cool dude. I carved him a, a wedding gift present. It was actually uh, a cork Canada goose. But this here was my first and only decoy I ever carved. I'll try to hold it a little bit closer. You know, it's a black duck drake. It's all, it's all uh, Tupelo and hand painted. It's called a smoothie. It's the only one I ever uh, carved and competed with. I did really well with it. I think uh, I think I was in three shows with it as an amateur or novice, and I think I won two best of shows with it. So it's the only one I really ever did. That's and awesome. then uh, the other ones, um, Ben, we were talking before the show here, and uh, when I started working for Greenhead Gear, I started carving. Um, my dad was a carver. My wife actually carved before I did. Um, and we had a lot of friends that were one of them, Charlie Prince, who's in Dayton, Ohio, was had won many, many uh, uh, championships and carving contests or whatever. And he kind of showed my dad and my wife how to do it. And I was kind of a bystander, you know, because I was busy hunting and doing this and doing that. And uh, come come when we started Greenhead Gear, we had a plan that we were going to get these carvers. Well, it wasn't happening fast enough. So next thing you know. I was carving 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week for probably three or four years. Carved a lot of decoys. And so some of these decoys behind us, it's a good friend of mine, Art Leonard's. Uh, the he's brand. in uh, Chincotink, Virginia. So I like I like uh, contemporary decoys, which are uh, smoothie decoys. Let me grab this one here. This is one uh, I just got. Dick Rohde, who carved a bunch or a lot of the greenhead gear decoys, and now he's carving some of the flex tone turkey decoys and the waterfowl decoys. Wow. He carved this one. Dick's a two time world champion, um, and he's almost like a second, he basically is a second father to me. So, this is called a smoothie, and uh, it's high quality, it's all hand painted, kind of a cool decoy. So, I like these. 
and I like ones that have a story, ones that's been hunted over a bunch of times, floated around the Chesapeake Bay, got some uh, shot in them. That's my kind of stuff right there. <laughs> some of the story on it. Yeah, exactly. Got a little mud on it. Yep. Yeah. Well, for all yep. the audience out there, uh, make sure you got these questions rolling in. We got quite a few coming in right now. It looks like. Uh, but definitely want to encourage more coming in. Oh yeah. Um, so Fred, let me, uh, let me ask you a question here. Can you scroll up? Please? Yep. Thank you. Uh, what would you recommend for guys that are just getting started in the waterfall? I mean, there's so much on your list, especially, I mean, if you got to depict if you're going to hunt water or if you're going to hunt field. Um, so what are a couple things that if a couple guys are looking to get started in just some minor things that they could look into? You know, uh, I think, uh, takes a lot less hunting items to be successful in the water than it does the field uh, simply because you can get in a smaller area when you're hunting a maybe a small wetland or something like that uh, or a pond or a creek or a river depends on what state you live in uh, those ducks or geese are pretty pinpointed right so they're going to come to a great uh, a real small area if you're field hunting you know it could be a hundred acre it could be a 400 acre section 500 acre section guy have a lot of equipment lines you have a lot more things so Getting your feet wet, I think uh, uh, the most important thing would be to buy you a dozen or two decoys and uh, take your old pair of binoculars you have and find the right spot. I remember I had, when growing up, I had a duck call and I had a burlap bag full of a, a dozen Victor plastic decoys that my grandpa had. And I shot the hell out of ducks, you know, because I scouted. I grew up in the woods, hunting squirrels, hunting rabbits, hunting really to be honest with you about anything it would move um and so uh you can't buy that you earn that and that is free it just comes with time so uh, you don't need a lot of money you don't need a lot of uh decoys or calls or all these fancy things to be successful most important part about waterfowl hunting or hunting or fishing is to be at the right spot and that's the most important part so it's not really that expensive as long as you have a pretty good spot Exactly. I would say that scouting is probably about 90, 90 to 95% of the hunt, really. Uh, yeah, I, I would say you're right on the, the, I know a lot of quote unquote great hunters that just happen to have a great spot. Exactly. <laughs> they look good on the Instagram though. Yeah, they're heroes because they got a hell of a good spot. Yep. <laughs> so um, I guess we did talk a little bit about your favorite hunt. That's from Rod. We got another question here. What do you think the border, this is actually got to be a question that everybody's thinking, diehards. What do you think about the border closure and how that's going to impact what this fall dash winter looks like? Well, obviously it's going to change things. Um, most, I think it's going to change maybe the goose hunting slightly uh, because geese are pretty hardy. Uh, and if it snows a little bit, they can survive and they will continue to, uh, to stay up there as far north as possible. So I think it could possibly impact the Canada goose harvest. Um, everything else, I don't think it will change it a whole lot. And the reason being is when you're talking about, as soon as frost comes, a lot of your, uh, say your teal, uh, widgeon, gawal, pintail, shovelers, um, their feet on invertebrates, mm -hmm. especially earlier in the year, small seeds. Once it starts freezing up there, a lot of that goes away. And those birds, that diet changes, and those birds have to migrate because of that. Uh, and a lot of them are moon migrators to begin with. And so they're going to they're gonna migrate at the same time every year. Not, not all of them, but a majority of them. So a lot of those birds will. Now, the, the mallard population, that could be something a little bit different. And uh, us Americans better hope for some snowfall. Whatever, all we've seen is mallards will continue to feed and stay as far north as they possibly can unless uh, snow comes. And typically about the five or six inch range is when mallards cannot typically, they're just not as big as a can of goose and they will typically migrate. Uh, I think they're going to be fresher. I don't think they're going to have as to be as educated. I think they might be a little slower to to head north, but when they do, I think the hunting will be exceptionally good. I think it'll be fresher. I think there'll be more birds coming, obviously, because there's a tremendous amount of birds, especially from U.S. people going up there for outfitters, guys, freelancing, shooting birds, mm -hmm. especially young birds. And I think that's what we're going to see. 
is the amount of young birds that typically are harvested in Canada are not going to get harvested to the degree that normally happens and they're going to come south. I think hunting is going to be probably better for us. I know right here in our region, um, we anticipate a better season. And the reason why I say that is north of the border here in Ontario, most people don't know this in the United States and other places, but baiting is allowed in Ontario, especially on Indian reservations. Mm. Um, and there's a place called Wapool Island. They literally, they have to be so far from the bait to hunt, but they literally dump, dump truckloads, grain truckloads of corn and piles. And so they hold a tremendous amount of birds in that region especially mallards late in the year, but a majority of the hunters are going up there to hunt and about all of the club members and those private clubs around there that have that particular license, you have to be 500 meters from that to hunt, um, are Americans. And they're not going to have the funds or the capability to do that. So we have a lot of mallards migrate into my area here in Northern Ohio around the shore Lake Erie about Veterans Day. It's usually just a magic time. Mm-hmm. The moon's right, the weather's right, photosynthesis time is right, and boom, they're starting to come from the north. And then they continue to flourish and they get about peak about, uh, no, or excuse me, about Thanksgiving. And then as soon as it gets cold, snow, those birds push on down to uh, Southern Ohio, Kentucky, Ballard County, Kentucky, Tennessee, Real Foot Lake, boom, 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 right on down there. And then a lot of times, other ducks would come, but here lately we haven't been getting those because those guys up there have been feeding them. I don't think you're going to feed them this year. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see. We we all anticipate a better, stronger December because of that. And I think that affects a lot of people, a lot of things. But bottom line is uh, a lot of those ducks that people shoot uh, winter in the south, period. Redheads, mm-hmm. cans, bluebills, ringnecks, wood ducks, teal. So they're they're coming no matter what. Absolutely. It, yeah. It's going to be interesting. And there's no, there's nothing, I mean, nothing stopping them right now. I mean, they're just going to keep. Yeah. I, I guess the whole, the, the rest of the story is, does it really matter, right? We're all going to get out. <laughs> we're going to go. It yep. just gets to talk about in the blind, but in the end, That's it'll right. be what it is. Yep. Good yep. coffee talk. Um, I'm kind of, kind of butt in here on Matt, but some of the questions coming through are on, on the calls. So how much is too much calling? When's the right time to call? I mean, I think those are two topics that we could spend three hours on each topic. Uh, but what are some of the the cadences of a duck call that you're calling to on an early season bird versus late season? Do you change that up at all? Yeah, it, it, it changes tremendously. Um, and it, this is going to come down the, the proper way, in my opinion, to call a duck and or goose we can separate this out if you want to ben because it's two totally different things it's similar but different uh, is you have to know the birds you got to know what type of birds you're hunting you're hunting early season birds are you hunting mid-season birds late season educated birds and it's pretty easy to tell and given the fact that you know the birds in your area so i would go into some a little bit of detail so, so when we were just talking about earlier we we're talking about house hunting is going to be maybe in North Dakota early in the year it's warm like here in Ohio for instance we're getting ready to start our opening day comes is going to be this coming Saturday okay it's going to be the 10th of October well it's about a week earlier than it has been for traditionally forever the ODNR brought it in the second year in a row week early it's going to be 80 degrees on Saturday here okay so uh, when the gunshot's going and the first time ducks have been shot at, they're not going to be very responsive to a duck call. Not unless you're in the middle of nowhere and you have no competition. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that exists most places anymore, no. at least of where I live. There's, there's a boogeyman behind every, every tree. I find that early in the year, just a common whistle does really well because it's something that's subdued. It's something that a beginning caller can use. But it's also something you different from what most people do. And I've, I've made a living out to be different than what my other competition around me is doing. And so if they're running 10 dozen decoys, I'll run 10 decoys. I want to try to be opposite of what they're doing. So a whistle. And then obviously just a simple That's early season calling. There's not a lot of communication now. 
as it winds down and birds start to get in what we call a migration mode or they start flocking together. And that's when if you drive by a pond and there's a duck scattered and they're scattered across the whole pond, I promise you your duck call probably won't have much impact on your success. But if you drive by and you see 150, 200 mallards and they're in a flock or pretty tightly bunched across the wetland, then that's when a duck call will be way more successful. Which okay. call are you calling there? Uh, this is a green top rocker. It's a, it's a call we come up with a couple years ago. It's a single reed. Um, and it's a call that I can blow. It's a call that's extremely loud but it has a unique ability, probably the best one we've ever made it bl being blown very quiet. And, and that's the key. I have two, I have two calls on my lanyard. I have a loud duck call and a soft duck call. And then down here, I have a loud goose call and a soft goose call, all right? So you see on my lanyard that all my right loud calls are on the right-hand side because I'm a right-handed guy. So I'm holding my shotgun with my left hand and my goose call and my duck call with my right hand. But if I go out and the wind's not blowing or it's early in the year and I want to be soft, I just simply take my lanyard off and turn it around. Magic. And, I put it on. and then here's my loud duck or my soft duck call. And then that's my soft goose call. All right. So match the hatch, weather conditions, time of year. A good rule of thumb is when it's warm, don't call a whole lot. You know, and it goes right in with, with decoys as well. Uh, when it's colder, become a little bit more aggressive. Um, the other thing is reading your birds and understanding your birds. Uh, and I think that this is where some people have, and I've hunted with a lot of professional guys, a lot of my friends, they have a certain style of calling, and it's just a style they have. It's kind of like our voice, uh, Ben, if you and I were... Uh, hanging around each other for a couple weeks in duck camp, hunting back and forth. I'd know your voice, you'd know mine, right? And you yep. could walk down the hall in the lodge, start talking, I know it'd be you. Same way with your buddies. When they start calling, you go, hey, that, you know, that's Matt over there blowing his goose call um, because they have a certain rhythm, mm -hmm. right? Um, but a really good caller has a rhythm that matches what he's reading on the ducks and or the geese. And that's what I call real rhythm and not human rhythm. And so, and that, that might be a little advanced for this question, but the key is the reading the ducks. Let's just talk about ducks and then we'll come back. And maybe somebody will have a question on geese and we'll dive into it. But on the duck side of things, you can use it. All, the old rule of thumb is, is never call it their beaks. If they're coming towards you with a duck, there's nothing you can do to make them fly to you any faster. They're already doing what you want them to do. If you hunt and you call at them, you're simply doing what 98% of the other hunters in the area would typically do. They see ducks, they see geese, they start blowing their calls. Mm -hmm. uh, me personally, and a lot of, of people that do it day in, day out, and have become very proficient at, at working birds in and shooting them in close, so we don't do that. We simply watch them and we read them because they're telling us something, especially geese. A good rule of thumb with geese is if they're flying to you and they're calling, that means they believe your decoys are live birds because they're communicating. The only time geese are quiet is when they're nervous. And so if you can hear them coming, but you can't see them. And they come up over the tree line and they see your decoys and they shut up, you have smart geese on your hands. But if you're blowing your goose call 100 mile an hour and you can't hear that and your buddy can't hear that, uh, you're calling wide open at geese that are smart. You're not going to get them. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to read the birds at distance and it's body language and what they're saying, especially on geese with ducks. It's more about body language and what they're doing. If you're in the right spot, if you've done your homework, like Matt said earlier, 90% of, of the homework is finding the right spot. If you think you're in the right area, this this little duck call simply takes that right area and makes them land right in front of you and not 40 yards to the left or 40 yards to the right. Because if you haven't done your homework enough to know that you're in the right spot or not in the right spot, you're probably not in the right spot to begin with, you know. And so it depends on the situation. So understanding the ducks, and I'll give you one prime example of what I'm talking about so people understand. I have a hunting club. Uh, this just it's not really a club it's my private place that I hunt across the street from refuge and ducks that I live in what I call a staging area 
not a migrating area. So the ducks from the north come to the area that I live in and they stage and they stay here weeks, two weeks, month, month and a half, two months at a time, right? They become very, very smart and educated. And they stay across the street in a refuge. And when they come to my place, the ones that are flying about 30 to 50 yards high are the smart ducks that's been there. They come over and if you blow your duck call at them, you have very, very little chance of getting them in. The high ducks are coming from a distance and they're fresh ducks, not that they're migrating in, <clears throat> but these are ducks sitting way out on the lake or some parts and they're coming up they're new to the area and you can blow your duck call you can get aggressive on them. with a feed call you can do a lot of things but if you do that to that flow low flying duck that's coming across it's smart no chance whatsoever and it's not that a, a smart duck is low and a high duck is is dumb in my area it's that way mm -hmm. but i drive 10 miles it could be the opposite of that that's the most important part of the thing is uh, is understand your area and your conditions and react to them that way. Long-winded answer, but there's just so many different things you can talk about. Yep. No, that's a great, great answer. No, yeah. And uh, to touch on the calling too, probably one of the bigger things to do off season is to just practice calling. Uh, a lot of people overlook that and it could help you out in the season if you just take that month or even like a couple weeks to just practice calling. You don't want to show up August 15th, early season, North Dakota opener and sound terrible. So, yeah, yeah. Practice makes perfect. You know, I, I learned how to blow a call from competing in contests because going to get your butt, butt kicked and wanting to be do better. I was blowing my call. I'll be honest with you. When I was young, I'd probably blow my calls for two or three hours a day. I mean, it's just what I like to do. You know, some some people like to listen to music. Some people play guitar. Some people play bat, basketball. I uh, I played baseball and I blew my duck and goose call. That's just what I did. And uh, that got my ability to blow the calls really good. I ain't saying you have to do it that far, but it really helps. What I, How I learned how to call ducks and geese was number one, in the field. Number two, actually watching live ducks and geese and spending a tremendous amount of time in the wild with them, watching them call ducks, watching them call geese and understanding that process. So the skill level comes from practice. The uh, benefits of being successful in the field a lot of times comes from watching and listening live birds. Getting that experience. Mm -hmm. Yep. Different levels of the game. Absolutely. So, um, I guess getting back on the calls there, I mean, you, you made some sweet noise with that, uh, that mallard, mallard hen there. Do you mind doing a kind of a hunting situation? Okay, we got ducks approaching from left to right. I mean, you're calling to the edges. Like you already said, you're not calling to the beaks. You're calling to their butts. What is that? Yeah. Just kind of give us a brief rundown, I guess, of what that would look like in those different situations. Okay, so say I'm in a marsh. Um, there's two scenarios. Uh, the first scenario, which is one that probably a majority of people on listening in and watching uh, will be familiar with, and that's public land hunting. Oh, yeah. uh, that's what I grew up hunting. Uh, to be honest with you, I still prefer it today. I just like the challenge of it um, and understanding when to go. All right. And so, like, for, for instance, like in public land hunting, when you're hunting a marsh, a lot of times those ducks that come out first thing in the morning in the evenings, those are local local ducks are very, very smart, right? But those ducks that they get conditioned up so much hunting pressure that later in the day, maybe from 10 to 3, when everybody's going to the boat ramp, I'm usually driving out to go hunting. I don't see a lot, but what I see could possibly be workable because I don't have as much competition. But a, cool, a current rule of thumb is as far as calling ducks, the people that get them hooked up first in a public area tend to keep them unless they mess something up, right? The key is, is understanding how to read the ducks because if a duck circles one time, you have a 70% chance of getting them to come in. Circles twice, probably about 40%. Circles three times, probably about 20%, right? If, if you're calling, okay? It's the opposite of that if you're not calling. So if you circles once, hmm, no big deal. Circles twice, your your increase of getting in probably went up a little bit. If you haven't blown your call, circles a third time, 
boom, they come right in because they're not used to that, right? They're used to Hunter seeing them and calling nonstop all the time. And I think being different and understanding uh, the best time to call at a dock is when they are confused. And that is having to do with watching their body language. I always, always have my call to my mouth and I'm watching, I'm listening, watching reaction. As soon as I see any type of hesitation, so say the duck is flying uh, from you guys looking at from left to right here, my right to left, going this way. And there's a flock, maybe 10, 15 ducks, and they're looking around like this and they're flying by, but they're kind of looking at the decoys. If I see any ducks in that flock go like this, like they cup up or start to hesitate to come or go, that's when hit them one time like that, and a lot of times they'll pitch right in. Reading the ducks is really, really important. So a calling scenario, ducks are coming, they're fresh in the area, they're high, it's this clear sunny day, and you know they're high ducks, go ahead and crank on them, and it's a, all, all it is a hen mallard greeting sound. A hen mallard greeting to some of y'all out there that just gets going is simply a string of quacks. But when you put it together, So when you put that together, it tends to be in the wild anywhere from about three to seven quacks put together. They call it a hen mallard greeting sound. Three to seven notes is pretty good. The intensity of it means something. That little snappy pop, 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 pop is very aggressive, and ducks tend to really respond to it. Uh, and then, of course, you have the feed call. And then a sound that's overlooked that I use a tremendous amount is a simple quack. The reason why I, I use that a lot is, number one, I hear ducks do it all the time. And number two, I don't hear many hunters doing it. Can you now, it all comes back to uh, the amount of time that I spend if I'm not hunting ducks or geese, I'm watching ducks or geese. And I think I learned, I definitely learned more by watching them than I did hunting them. And what I mean by that is with a shotgun, I always said you have about 30 yard knowledge. Most hunters have a 30 or 40 yard knowledge. They can get the birds 30 to 40 yards. And if they figure the gig out, well, they're close enough, right? Because you can shoot them. But when we started filming TV shows and videos and things like that, we needed to get like 10 yards or 15 yards or landing in the decoys with the rest of them coming in. And we found out right away that we didn't know as much as we thought we did. And so by going back and watching, understand the, the details of blind placement and decoys and scouting and calling it how it all works together, um, that come from watching birds themselves. And it's really, really important if you want to get to, for the, the people out there that are advanced to pretty advanced. If you want to take your game to the next level, that's what you need to do is spend time watching the ducks and geese in their natural environment. If you're just getting going, just listen about everything we're talking about. And it's you don't have to be very, uh, you don't have to be a world champion caller to be a good duck caller. Not, number one, I'll tell you that same way with goose hunting. This call in the hands of a rookie that blows it too much is the world's biggest conservation tool. <laughs> There's more ducks and possibly more geese away than anything possible. Yep. But if you key on sounding like a duck or like a goose, but you're kind of quiet, kind of conservative, you'll be more effective. Now, this is what I'm telling you in 2020. But if I was to go back in the early 90s, mid 90s late 90s before youtube and before digital media and before about 70 percent of the people out there can can blow a call really well now if you go back prior to that this is like having 20 dozen decoys around your neck you can literally i remember going in kansas in the mid 90s walking around pheasant hunting and canada geese would be a half a mile three quarter mile three quarters of a mile away and i could pull my goose call out start calling and they come fly right over the top of us in Milo field. And by the end of the day, in the morning's hunt, 
we would have a full limit of pheasant and a half a limit of Canada geese because they weren't used to hearing that. They never heard anything like that before. Mm -hmm. Very easy to call in. Those times have changed. Now it's way, way more difficult to be honest with you, in my opinion. Hey, so going back to that little quack cadence you did, was there a bouncing hen in there? Uh, I put that in there and it's something that I've, yeah, it's a, A hen usually does a bouncing hen the last two to three notes. I've heard them do it through the whole cadence. Uh, most hunters do it through the whole cadence, but I hear mallards. Back, 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 back. Usually do it the last two or three notes, typically, while I hear live hen mallards on the water do it. At night, I have the ability to uh, have thousands, sometimes five, six, seven, ten thousand right behind my lodge. Uh, and I can go out there. And they're only, I have, 40 acres there and they'll only be in 10 acres at a time and then i move the water to the next one so i go out there and say the five thousand ducks in 10 acres go out there at night and I sit there and i listen to them for hours um and you definitely learn a lot you learn cadence you learn rhythm you learn that if you have a good cadence it's hard and you're halfway decent duck at blowing a call it's hard not to be effective because hen mallards are like people they have so many different voices. Yep. Hardly any of them sound the same. They're just all over the board. Uh, so cadence and timing is more important than anything. Really and truly, I think. Yeah. I what mean, do you think? Especially like cadence, like you were saying. But another thing too is like your pitch. I know like what we like to do up here in when we're field goose hunting is say if I have a flock of geese that's coming in, and it looks like they're just going to land on the edge of the decoys. Um, We don't usually, like, throw up a flag or anything. What we usually do is we pick up the pitch in our call. Um, So we'll start hitting them with, like, a comeback call with goose calling, basically, and they'll pick up their feet, and they'll keep flying, like, towards the decoys. Um, I don't know. I've never done it with ducks, so if you could touch on that. Um, I know we do it a lot up here with geese. It, it, it works the same way with ducks. Um, and it's almost like you're trying to confuse them. I mean, basically what you're doing is putting a slight scare into them. Like what the heck's going on? You know, mm-hmm. it'd be like, so you're going down to sitting over there in the chair at the, at the lunchroom, you go sit down, somebody yells at you. You stand up like, Hey, is everything cool? It's kind of a confusion tool. We've done it. Uh, I've done it. Uh, like you say, with goose hunt forever, duck calling, it'd be the same way. You're just simply something real sharp, real fast cadence, like a little bit of excitement, you know, um, I've seen it, uh, with, and and I've done it and seen it done and many times where you have Canada geese go to land, maybe circle your decoy spread and go to land two, 300 yards away, simply, Hey, everybody, I'm going to shoot and shoot one time. And it just picks them up and they get confused. Well, when waterfowl get confused, they do one thing typically, they flock together. Yep. Safety in numbers. And a lot of times they don't know where that's coming from. And they'll get up, you start calling, they'll turn and come right into decoys. It's not that they're that dumb, it's just it's their natural instinct. And if you can use that against them, like you say with your goose call, where you're you're almost somewhat scaring them enough to get them a little bit on edge, and then you back it off and talk them right in. Very effective tool. Yeah, exactly. I would say, um, yeah, cadence and pitch is really big. And then obviously, obviously practice. Um, but we're getting a lot of questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you this because you're probably the right person to ask. Uh, what would you suggest for a best goose call and duck call for a beginner, like guy that's just getting into it? Well, um, the most important part, and I've learned this, I have actually a box under my desk, but I have a lot more than that. I have a whole box here under my desk that are my calls from when I was 10, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I actually have probably a couple hundred of them that I bought through the years uh, trying to find the next best tool, trying to some, find something that I can blow. Well, once I figured out and got a hold of some, actually some good calls 
and got really proficient at it. Now I pull that box of calls out and blow through them. I was like, there's no wonder I couldn't figure out how to blow them. <laughs> they're, they're junk, right? Yep. Um, the type of calls and the quality of calls available today was just so much different than when it was available when I was young. A majority of calls are, are pretty proficient and are pretty good, especially if you stick with common brands. I hate to rule out people that only make a few or this or that or whatever, but there's there's a reason why certain brands are the most popular and certain brands are the ones that you found it, find in the Shield store. It's because those brands of calls have been consistently boiled down time and time and time again, and they're the ones that people have success with. Um, I would buy, like, I have a couple on back here, just throw it up on my desk. This is a, um, um, this is actually a couple calls we made for Ducks Unlimited, um, but these are injection molded polycarbonate calls. This happens to be a Devil Reed ATM. You see the DU logo there that we just happen to do some proofing on. And this is a COD, but these are polycarb calls. And a good polycarb call costs anywhere from, say, 20, most of the time, 25 to about 35 bucks to 40 bucks. Uh, in most cases, like these two calls, a COD and ATM. ATM is a double read. And if you're just getting in the game, uh, I would probably recommend that. To be honest with you, until we came out with the Green Top Rocker, uh, even as long as I've been blowing the duck call, I preferred a double read duck call. I thought it sounded more like a duck. I just liked the sound, and I had way, I had, I was more effective in the field with it. But with that being said, it's hard to squeal a double read duck call, and being a beginner caller, knowing how much air to put in the call is one of the number one issues. And if you put too much air in a single reed, it's just going to squeal and your birds are gone. A double reed is kind of like a little bit of a training wheels. So a good double reed duck call, like an ATM, uh, there's other obviously manufacturers out there that make a good quality call, quality call. And then I would buy a polycarbonate short reed goose call that's easy to blow. Come in a store, uh, shields and, and get with somebody like Matt in the in the retail and and kind of let them coach you and what they prefer. A lot of the associates in the store can actually blow the calls very well. And finding a call that you know is tuned and blows really well is the number one key. The number two key, do not take it apart and think <laughs> you can tune it better than the professionals that made it because that's what happens and we get thousands on back a year. Um, the calls that when they come out of the package, 90% of the time, 90, it should be 100% of the time, uh, they're as good as they're going to get. And they're way, they're tuned way better than what you could blow the call, especially as a beginner. And you taking it apart to try to make it so you can blow it is a disaster. Just stick with it. Uh, a lot of the calls come with a good DVD and just spend some time and get a hold of a buddy that knows how to do it. There's always someone in the neighborhood or the duck club or the boat ramp that you can make friends with. When I was young, I tagged on to everybody I could find, uh, pull them under their shirt tails and say, hey, can you help me do this or whatever? Ask a lot of questions, learn, spend some time. Waterfowl calling, in my opinion, the calling aspect is one of the coolest aspects of the whole deal. It's what hooked me when I was a little kid is the ability to communicate with one of God's creatures, creations, creatures, and actually make them think that you're one of them. Pretty, pretty damn cool to be honest with you and it's something that i truly truly enjoy all right we got a question from one of the lady hunters out there um and this is it's fantastic just because the woman the whole industry for for outdoor segments just continued to grow and so it's right. it's one of the most fat or the fastest growing segments of our industry um they moved the question on me here i apologize for the person that had the question and i no longer see it but how there it is um, what suggestions do you have for introducing other f female hunters? I mean, what is there a mentorship program out there? I know DU, there's a lot of local chapters, there's a lot of local organizations that do women's hunts and everything. Uh, with your tenure in the, in the industry, what have you seen? You know, what's the best way for these female hunters to get, get into it? You know, in most cases, I think young kids, young women, uh, women and men alike, I think just asking someone around that goes hunting, it tends to, uh, especially a waterfowl, you know, deer hunting typically is a little bit more of a solitary sport. A lot of people don't want to talk uh, about it because they only have a good one good buck in the area and they're sitting by themselves. Waterfowl hunting 
and hunters tend to be a little bit different breed about that. And what I mean by that is the cool thing about waterfowl hunting is you sit around the duck blind, you can be loud, you can talk, you can tell stories. I met a, a lot of personal information, a lot of, uh, a lot of business questions I had growing up, I, I asked people that I respected in the, in the duck blind, maybe an uncle, a friend, colleague, what have you. And so just getting on a forum, getting uh, going to a local DU event would probably be a really good way to, to do it. There's hundreds of DU yeah. events, thousands actually. Uh, and going to one of those events, number one, you're supporting a great cause with Ducks Unlimited, the world leader in conservation. But number two, you're surrounded by a, a lot of people that enjoy hunting. Um, if you're really serious about it, joining the committee, helping them put that event on, you're going to be surrounded some, with some people that really enjoy it. And uh, to be honest with you, I've met very, very few waterfowlers in my entire lifetime that wouldn't take a, a young lady or a lady out hunting or a guy, a young kid or whatever. 90% of the time, if I have time or people have time, they're especially introducing new people to the sport. I think you'll find it very, very easy. Just do a little legwork. I'd start with the local DU chapter, to be honest with you, in your, in your uh, town or neck of the woods. And I think you'll be very successful right away. Absolutely. So obviously you shoot a lot of ducks and geese. <laughs> and I guess we're getting a lot of questions on what's your favorite like recipe to prepare uh, duck and goose. I know one of my favorites is goose pastrami. It's awesome for ice fishing. It's awesome for scouting or a blind snack, and it just tastes good. Uh, what's one of your favorites? Well, duck, as I get older, I still hunt Canada geese. Um, I love to hunt them. I don't prefer to eat them. I do eat them, but they're like, uh, they're not my favorite thing to eat. It's, it'd be like a difference between a T-bone steak and like a hot dog. Hot dogs are great, but they're not a T-bone steak. I would put certain ducks as a T-bone steak. Uh, during duck season, my family and I, we eat duck probably about three to four times a week. And when we're traveling, filming, hunting in Canada, we'll eat duck two to three times per day. Um, there's a lot of different ways. Uh, so let's talk about duck real quick. Number one, the most important part about duck is making sure um, – you get them iced down, everything clean, everything edible, ready to go. I like to use some type of a citrus uh, marinade or, or something to soak them in to draw the blood out of the breast. And so I use orange juice. It's readily available. You can buy it anywhere. And so I will put the duck breast in, breast them out, put them in a Ziploc bag or container. I like a Ziploc bag because you don't have to use as much orange juice. Put a little of that in there. Now, if you let it go for more than 12 hours, your duck meat will start to tastes like OJ. But what happens is it extracts a lot of the blood out, gets a lot of the gaminess out of the, the, the breast. And then I like to get them out, wash them off, and then I will pound them out, uh, just like you would a, a chicken breast or something like that with a good pounding hammer. And then I use some type of steak seasoning. Um, and there's one thing that I use a lot that's very, very simple, and it really makes the duck breast taste more like what you consider beef. And that is a dry ranch seasoning. Uh, I don't know what it does to the meat, but it really changes the whole complexity of the taste. Um, in my household, I do a majority of the cooking. I love to cook. So we eat duck probably, you know, I got 20 different recipes. But <laughs> the easiest way is to put that on there, dry ranch, and then put some steak seasoning on there. Uh, you can wrap in bacon, do kebabs. You can do lots of things like that. Finger food, anything like that. But tenderize that meat, get the blood out, and put some seasoning on there, and cook your duck medium rare. Uh, I think if you overcook it, it becomes starts to become dry, uh, becomes more like liver. Uh, duck off the grill or uh, the rotisserie or smoker hot is very very good. If you allow it to cool too much, a lot of times it'll get um, get a little tough on you. A pellet grill is extremely good uh duck yep. duck breast is extremely good on a pellet grill i do the same process but that you can even take it out the next day out of the refrigerator when it's cold and eat it and it's still very tender very juicy how you pre prepare that now canada goose in my opinion especially giant canada's lessers you can do the same thing specs are very good but when you start talking about giant canada geese honkers you gotta be a little bit more creative grinding that up 
and take it to your butcher and have in summer sausage or land shakers or be six man of it is a very popular way to do it. Uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Robinson, he's a biologist in Southwest Michigan uh, and is a hell of a hunter and shoots a tremendous amount of geese every year. He, he taught me this recipe many years ago. You take a goose breast. Now I will give you a key on, uh, on, on, and I learned this a long time ago. You brush your canned goose out and you're just talking about the breast here and you're washing, maybe you got them in a bucket or a bowl or whatever. When you reach in there, grab those breasts. When you grab them, if they're real soft, that goes in the eating pile. If you grab it and it's stiff, it's harder, that goes in the grind pile. And those are to be made sausage or whatever. I think it has to do with, if you make a clean shot on a can of the goose, it's kind of like what people would say about antelope. A clean shot antelope that passes right away is good to eat. But ran, it runs for five, 600 yards and gets that adrenaline and it's, it's meat, totally different deal. I believe a can of goose the same way. And so picking those nice soft breasts out and then you boil them uh, for about 30 to 40 minutes. I would take a fork and poke holes in them, boil them in water for 30 to 40 minutes. And what happens is you get the blood out, you get all that done. And then you put them in a crock pot on medium for about eight hours and you put uh, apple cider in with them. And let that simmer down when you, when you drain all that off you can really take that goose breast and just tear it up. it's just like pulled pork pulled beef and it just separates right out and you put your best favorite barbecue sauce in like we might have a couple a table and i do, I do this we have uh like the tour of the town here in, in this town of Portland, ohio and we have a, people from other businesses come here to zinc calls and we have drinks and hors d'oeuvres or whatever and i'll do some pulled goose sandwiches and there'll be bankers and, and ladies and everybody eating all this food. And they have no idea it's goose. And at the end, <laughs> like, hey, where'd you get that beef? It was really good. I said, well, I'll be honest with you. i tell you, it's Canada goose. They're like, you got to be kidding me. That's for the golf course. It tastes, <laughs> yeah, it tastes really, really good. Um, there's some other recipes, but that is a really good, simple way, especially if you're off hunting. Maybe you make a trip and you're hunting while you're out hunting and scouting and doing all things you have to do on a hunting trip. You can put that in. You walk away from it. Very, very good. Can cooker is another way to do goose. Uh, this is really good with your vegetables or whatever. Make it a stew. Anything, a goose tends to, the longer you cook it at a lower temperature, the better and tender it is. That'd be a good one. Where a duck, in my opinion, a lot of time it can be faster. Uh, high temp. Uh, some of the best duck I've ever had in my life has been up in Canada. Uh, I think it's uh, some crazy temperature. I think they said it's like 1,200 degrees fire oven and it's called a three minute duck you want a two minute or a three minute duck and they just stick it in it's so hot it sears and i tell you what it's they're typically canvas backs it's unbelievable how good they are to eat so hmm. ducks a little different goose slow and low duck high and fast very awesome. good well forever we are definitely running out of time here i've got time for one more question um and it's been around there's actually quite a few questions on it but motion in the decoys uh spinning yeah. decoys and i mean the, the question has been duck goose snow you know everything i mean what what's your thoughts on motion well motion is the key one of the keys to success in a decoy rig there's uh, i mean we could really talk about decoy rigs um so recap for everybody watching and i'll sum this up in the very end here um the most important part about waterfowl hunting day in day out no matter where you're at is number one your location that's number one number two is your camouflage Number two is where most people go wrong. Most people uh, don't hide well. They don't take much time. They're so worried about the decoys that they skip number two. And trust me, you said the best decoy rig in the world. If you're not hid, not going to happen, especially with smart birds. Number three is your decoy um, selection, how you use them and how you place them, which is a long story there. And number four is your calling. So those are the four things that I make sure of that are in place on every hunt. And if you go back and take the time to go back and go, uh, you know, this one hunt that we had, we thought was going to be awesome. It just didn't turn out. Did you do all four things? I think you'll find that you skipped at least one, sometimes two of them. Okay. So movement and decoy is very, very important. Um, let's talk about field hunting because on the water, your decoys are typically moving on the water. Right? And if the wind's not blowing, you're going to have a pretty rough day anyway. You can put jerk cords in and that all helps. Don't get me wrong, 100% but it's not going to change the conditions and no wind is a tough deal. So let's talk about field spread. Canada geese are, uh, or when they are nervous, they do two things. Number one, they quit moving. And number two, they quit calling. 
if you go back and look at the old full body rigs back in the day, um, before a lot of people hunt Canada geese in the field, none of them had motion stakes or moving systems, what have you. They were stationary decoys and they worked because there wasn't a lot of people hunting them in the field. Most people were hunting Canada geese on the water or they were duck hunting and some Canada geese flew by and they shot at them. Uh, today with the early goose season and everybody getting involved in September, now they're buying trailers, they're buying trailers full of decoys. Birds are getting uh, acclimated to that and getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And so with that being said is motion had become the key. I come up with that design way back in the day with green head gear with that motion cone and the stake and you put out all the decoys for movement, man, it really changed our hunting success because all of a sudden geese were approaching decoy spreads that actually moved. Prior to that, in most cases, the decoys never moved. And so it was a transition into uh, a majority of your decoys should move and having motion in your decoys, either from a decoy that moves on a motion stake or spins or a flag. Uh, say for instance, like uh, on Canada goose hunting, a flag, Randy Bart's come up with a T-flag many, many years ago. And now there's so many flags out there, it's incredible. But understand that how you use that flag is how you, like how a expert would use a duck call. A good rule of thumb is if the, de if the geese are in the same field as I am hunting, I will never raise the flag any higher than the backs of the decoy. Okay. Uh, so very, very low. Because when you hold a, this is just a goose call, but when you hold that flag up like that and you're waving it, it doesn't really look like a goose. I mean, it's goose-like, but after they've been done and educated that so many times, they figured out that what that is. I've seen it in Southern Illinois where almost like you were holding an orange flag, like they weren't gonna come in. But having that movement down, the key to movement is for them to see it, but not understand what it is. I think would wrap it up. Movement is a huge part of that and there's silhouettes there's motion decoys or spinner decoys there's so many different things and how you can use all that and it all works together it just comes down to how you use it and when you use it yep very important for sure well we have about three thousand questions that we never got to so we'll make sure for the audience out there that we get some questions answered we got definitely enough experts here at shields but if there's some fancy questions or some technical questions um I can bounce them to you if that's okay, Fred. Yeah, yeah, you'll have yeah have my email address to send to me. I'll spend a whole day answering if that's what it takes. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty. You know, having people successful, that's what you guys do with your associates, like Matt, uh, having people in the aisle that can help guide people and mm -hmm. understand and, and, and have them not only buy a product, but then have it out, take it out and have success. That's where the sport grows. And that's where the sport dies if they don't have it. And so being successful and helping people achieve what they're trying to do is so important for us to have the sport moving forward. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I mean, we all hate pressure. We all hate competition, but it's more people in the industry. It's more people that are out there living, you know, in the outdoors and enjoying the sport and enjoying the heritage. And it's, you know, I think 2020 is as wild and crazy as it has been. But I mean, just for the fishing segment just skyrocketed there's so many people yeah. engaged in the sport so far this yeah. fall i mean i've traveled to four different states and every state i go to for bird hunting upland sorry bird dog guy uh <laughs> for upland hunting i mean it's just absolutely incredible how many people are out there yeah well ben when i i think the number about when i started in like 79 was about 3.2 million to 3.4 million waterfowlers uh, and today there's about 900,000, give or take uh, so it's shrunk tremendously as far as the total number. But I will tell you this, uh, when I was young, uh, after the first weekend, you could pretty much hunt any duck blind on the lake because there were the pheasant hunting and squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting. Football. Today, you go there in the middle of the week and every blind on the lake is full. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even though there's not as many of us, I will promise you, there's a lot more people spending time and hours in the field. Just hunting pressure has never been as high as it's been right now, in my opinion. And I've been doing it for well, 41 years. I've never seen as much pressure as I see today. I would agree. Yep. Yeah, especially with 2020. I mean, get outside. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy year. Get outside, enjoy, enjoy hunting, enjoy fishing. So. All, all, all the waterfowl has left North Dakota, unfortunately. So, I nope. mean, you got to go south. Yeah, don't go there. No more ducks, no more geese, no nothing here. Kansas and Oklahoma <laughs> are just packed with birds. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's get to the exciting thing real quick. Uh, we do want to apologize right now for anyone that was able to join late. There were some technical issues. Uh, this recording will be uh, everything that's been talked about so far this evening will be available tomorrow. Uh, with some some of the Q and A as well, it's going to be available. So we do apologize for any technical issues, but the prize drawing. So we got two winners. Total total worth of this prize package between the two is over seven thousand dollars. We got zinc calls, we got Browning Vortex Yeti, uh, including a one of a kind, only one in existence, probably the call and and Fred, if you would, can you make some sweet music on that real quick to, to let them know that it is actually working? This is actually a, it's a, it's a stained. It has a, uh, a dye in it. It's a bird's eye maple. It is one of a kind, to be honest with you. I went through a box of a bunch of calls and I think it was pretty cool. I signed it there. It can go on the lanyard. You can take it out of the field, but this one here is a pretty special one. Probably deserves to go on the shelf maybe, but this like, is a COD. Really gold nice band. Call. You don't even use gold bands anymore, do you? exciting all right so dennis m from fort collins colorado is one of the winners as well as jeff m from wapton north dakota we got a north dakota guy on here that's great it's the first one i think fort collins, fort collins uh colorado trust me that guy knows uh he's happy because he's a can of goose hunter that is fantastic <laughs> out there as well that front Been there many, many times yeah he might have to uh, invite you out there all right, so with closing here, guys, uh, appreciate everybody that's staying on. I know we're five minutes over time. Um, we want to thank you, Fred. Thank you for your personal time for doing this. Obviously, there's you're doing it as, as a favor for Shields. We appreciate it, um, especially right now during hunting season. I mean, I get it. I can't believe you're actually home, to be honest with you. I figured you'd be in a hotel or in a decoy trailer taking the call. So we do definitely appreciate that. We want to thank all the sponsors again for it. Uh, and Right now, this concludes our 2020 Shields virtual hunt series. Uh, it's been a fun, fun ride. We kick off some ice fishing series here coming up in a couple months, so that's going to be good. And uh, please make sure you guys are out there following Shield or at Shields Outdoors and Facebook and Instagram for more hunting content. We're going to have a lot of these questions answered out there and available for everyone. And um, with that, we're going to go ahead and close. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. You just heard our conversation with Fred Zink during the Shields Virtual Hunt Series. We started hosting these live virtual seminars with industry professionals to dive into the knowledge banks of these people and allow the viewers to ask questions on strategy, tactics, or products that will help others become successful in the field as well. We also gave away some great prizes. Keep an eye out for future seminars as we have more in the works. Hopefully you enjoyed this segment and gained some valuable information to take with you on your next trip to the duck blind. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.